you to open up your copy of God's Word to John chapter 15. John chapter 15 this morning, we will start at verse 18. John chapter 15, starting at verse 18. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belonged to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember the words I spoke to you. No servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin. Now, however, they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father as well. If I had not done among them what no one else did, they would not be, a guilty, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen these miracles and yet they have hated both me and my father. But this is to fulfill what is written in their law. They hated me without reason. A longtime customer of florist Baronel Stutzman asked her to design and create a custom floral arrangement for his same-sex marriage ceremony. Well, she politely told him that she couldn't participate in this ceremony because of her Christian faith. She referred him to three other local florists. Well, after the customer's partner described this conversation on his Facebook page, other media outlets started to report on the situation. And uh, through the media, the Attorney General of her state learned about this and filed a lawsuit against Baronell claiming that the state law required her to either create this floral arrangement for this same-sex ceremony or give up her wedding business. Shortly after that, the ACLU also filed suit against Baronell on behalf of the couple and she was faced with a barrage of media inquiries, hate mail, and phone calls, and even death threats. The trial court ruled against Baronell and ordered her to pay penalties and attorney's fees, threatening nearly everything she owns. Two men walked into the Masterpiece Cake Shop and requested a custom cake celebrating their same-sex ceremony. Jack politely declined. He explained that he would be happy to sell them anything in the shop, but that his Christian convictions and his commitment to honoring the Word of God would prevent him from participating in um, their ceremony using his art to celebrate something that was contrary to his religious beliefs. Jack could have never imagined that remaining true to his religious convictions would result in death threats 
an eight-year legal battle, the loss of a significant part of his business, half of his employees, and the repression of his artistic and religious freedom. But that's exactly what happened. After the couple left Jack's shop, they filed a complaint with the Civil Rights Commission, and the commission found that Jack had violated the state's sexual orientation and gender identity law. You probably recognize that I have just described two incidents that took place in our own country. Most of the time when we focus on the persecuted church, we're thinking about people far away, communist-dominated or Muslim-majority lands, but persecution is on the horizon here. No, it's not on the horizon. It's here. Granted, it's much worse elsewhere, so that some people would say, don't call what's happening in our own nation persecution. Well, persecution is not an all-or-nothing affair. It's not either genocide or nothing to worry about. There is a continuum of persecution that can include economic sanctions, shunning, alienation from your community, loss of employment, loss of property, vandalism, physical violence, mob violence, harassment by officials, kidnapping, and then on to the worst, forced labor, imprisonment, torture, and death. So my focus this year as we observe International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church, is not on the far away, but on the close at hand. And I want to kind of prepare us for the kinds of things that we might all experience unless God in his mercy works a mighty revival and renewal in our land. And the word that I believe God has for us from a variety of scriptures is don't be surprised and don't be afraid. Don't be surprised. Remember how we began our service? Or, or uh, remember rather the, the words that uh, Drew led us in reading just a few minutes ago. The reference there on the slide is um, a mistake on my part. It is John 15, verse 18, where Jesus says, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. And by the world, Jesus does not mean every single person in the world, and not even necessarily the majority of the people in the world. Um, we have unbelieving neighbors who don't hate us, and even in some of the lands where persecution is the worst, there are plenty of people who, who just want to live their lives, live and let live. They don't particularly hate their Christian neighbors. By the world, Jesus means something, something like what we mean when we say, the man, as in, stick it to the man. The... Uh, the elites, the powerful, in charge of government, education, the corporate world, the system, the bureaucracy, those who run things 
and jealously guard their power. And if, Jesus says, they kick you out of university because of your bigoted Christian views, if they impose ruinous fines on you, if they destroy your business, if they try to tell your church that you can hum your worship but you can't sing it, if they try to tell you, uh, your pastor, what he's allowed to say and what he's not allowed to say, and don't, th don't think I'm exaggerating, and our neighbors to the north, a Canadian pastor, wrote a letter to the editor defending the biblical view of marriage as between a man and a woman, and he was charged with a hate crime, fined $5,000, ordered not to say this anymore publicly, and in fact to issue a public apology. If, Jesus says, the world hates you for your stand, your commitment to the authority of God's word, keep in mind, which is another way of saying, don't forget, which is another way of saying, don't be surprised. The man, the world, hates Jesus because he claims lordship over all of life, not just the Sunday school classroom, and the world doesn't want to get off the throne. If you belong to the world, the world would love you as its own, Jesus continues. The world might even tolerate you and your superficial Christian veneer as long as you keep your sentimental views locked up safely in your heart. Or, or maybe even within the walls of your church building. Just don't try to live out your faith in the public square or talk about it publicly. But, as it is, Jesus says, you don't belong to the world. That's why the world hates you. And you might think, I, I don't get this hostility. I mean, I'm a... I'm a Good citizen, I pay my taxes, I keep my property neat, I, I serve in the local food pantry, I recycle. Why, why do they hate me? Because unless you hide your commitment to Jesus, you are a living, walking, talking rebuke to the world. You're different. You represent a supreme authority, the resurrected, ascending, and returning king of kings. They killed him, so don't be surprised if they persecute you. And that's what he says. If they persecuted you, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you. Eleven disciples heard this discourse of Jesus in John 15. Judas had already left to betray our Lord. Of those 11, 10 died martyrs' deaths, and the 11th died in exile. Let's see what he says on this subject. And maybe you'll read this one aloud with me. Let's read it together. Do not be surprised, my brothers, if the world hates you, 1 John 3.13. I guess John was listening that night when Jesus said, 
don't be surprised. So was Peter, who writes, uh, Dear friends, don't be surprised at the painful trial you're suffering as though something strange were happening to you. You know what is strange? You know what is unusual in history? That for a couple of centuries in these United States and other nations impacted by the Christian gospel, the Judeo-Christian worldview, we've enjoyed incredible freedom, which most of us have taken for granted. But it's unusual in history. But that Judeo-Christian worldview has been gradually eroded. Hemingway, in one of his novels, says something about a man who went bankrupt in two stages. First it was gradually, and then it was suddenly. And that's what's happened here in the United States. First it was gradually, then it was suddenly. For a long time, God was mocked, the Bible was mocked, secularism slowly taking over, and then all of a sudden you can lose your job if you use the wrong pronoun for a colleague in the workplace. In a community college, two students prayed for their professor in his office. He didn't object to this, but another professor in the hall heard them, came in, interrupted and stopped them, and filed a complaint with the dean, and they were suspended for praying on campus. A church in California decided that once the curve was flattened, they would obey Jesus and not forsake the assembling of themselves together, not tell people that they couldn't attend because they had to limit capacity, and they were fined $18,000. In Canada, a church had it far worse. Its pastor spent a month in jail for holding services. Another persecuted Canadian pastor toured the United States for four weeks warning churches, what's happening in my country is going to happen here if you folks don't wake up. So, the Apostle Paul and Barnabas were able to write that uh, we have to go through many trials if we're going to enter the kingdom of God. And to the Thessalonian Christians, Paul says, we kept telling you, we kept telling you that we would be persecuted, and it turned out that way. Jesus and his apostles say to us, don't be surprised. And don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Were you attentive to the songs that we sang this morning? Don't be afraid. We've got a great, powerful God who has us in his grip. We have a returning king who has already defeated Satan's sin and death and who will complete that victory one day and take us to be with himself. We have much reason for courage. We are not to be afraid. This is how we began our service this morning with Psalm 27, the Lord God is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? In God I trust, says Psalm 56. I will not be afraid. What can mortal man do to me? Nothing that happens to us 
together or any of us individually happens without coming from or passing through God's almighty hands. A vast army came up against Israel and King Jehoshaphat prayed, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. And we sometimes may not know what to do. How should a congregation respond to encroachments on religious liberty? Can a Christian enter a given profession and know that she'll be able to do her work with integrity? Should you protest an employer's mandates or not? Might you consider moving your family to a more freedom-friendly state or stay put. Like Jehoshaphat, we may not always know what to do, but our eyes are on God. And after so praying, Jehoshaphat was able to encourage his people, do not be afraid or discouraged, for the battle is not yours but God's. Don't be afraid. I'm not saying don't be concerned or maybe even don't be angry. There are some things worth being concerned and worth being angry about. These verses are not saying that citizens in a free country should just roll over, give up, or throw in the towel. When the Apostle Paul, who knew persecution would come and warned his congregations about it, was himself wrongly imprisoned or beaten, he didn't just say, oh, well, Jesus said this would happen. He asserted his rights as a Roman citizen. Baronel Stutzman in Washington State and Jack Phillips in Colorado have been striving in court for the right to practice their faith in their floral and cake art in keeping with their Christian convictions. I happen to know a church that sued the governor of its state for the right to worship under the lordship of Jesus. So I'm not saying to give up or give in, but I'm saying what I think these verses are saying to you and to me, whatever is on the horizon, don't be afraid. Don't be surprised. Don't be afraid. Senator Josh Hawley of Missouri recently told a gathering of religious conservatives, quote, I just want to say to you that it's firm my, my firm conviction that in this hour, in this time of testing for our nation and for us as believers, we need what we need above all is we need a baptism of courage. So, the Apostle Paul writes, be courageous and be strong. As did Isaiah, the prophet in the Old Testament. Hear me, you people who know what is right. And we'll pause right there in the middle of his sentence. Hear me, you people who know what is right. Listen, can we say and really believe without arrogance or pride that we we know what's right. We know God. We know God's word. And in a world gone mad, 
we need to hang on to the conviction that at least some things we know. We're living in a society where millions of babies are slaughtered and their body pieces sold off. Our tax money goes to support the people doing this. A society where drag queens are in charge of story time at our local library, where pediatricians treat gender dysphoria in young teen girls with double mastectomies, where sodomite unions are blessed by the magistrates as marriages, where puberty blockers are prescribed by a predatory medical profession. It's madness. And we must have the moral clarity and the courage in such an insane culture to speak what's true. As Isaiah goes on to say, you people who know what is right, do not fear the reproach of men or be terrified by their insults. Don't be cowed into silence. One observer of our culture writes, the reason the evangelical church in North America today is languishing is to be found right here. We are led by men who crumple under criticism. We're led by men who wither under any level of abusive commentary. This is actually just another way of saying we are not being led by men at all. There are evangelical leaders who would be more upset that I use the word sodomite than they are over the reality to which the word points. May God make us, like David, bold and stout-hearted to hold on to what is right, to speak what is right, and not be cowed into silence. You might not feel particularly brave, but you know, courage is kind of like a muscle. It's strengthened by use. Exercise it in little things, and then perhaps you'll be prepared for the big things. You may be in a conversation where God's truth is being maligned, and you can humbly, without arrogance or aggressiveness, but courageously speak God's truth into the situation, and then maybe the next time you'll be better prepared, even though the, the challenge may be greater. Even, even the Apostle Paul, that bold missionary, was not always, well, he wasn't cocky or overconfident, even facing trial and possible execution, he wrote to the Philippians, I hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage. He was asking them to pray for him. He was reasonably confident of the outcome of his trial, but he said, when it comes, I hope that I'll have sufficient courage. Oxford professor John Lennox notes that when God calls us to do something difficult, he gives us the strength when we need it, not in advance. And he illustrates this biblical principle by sharing a story about his encounter with a Russian follower of Jesus who spent years in a Siberian labor camp 
for the crime of teaching his children the Bible. Lennox writes, He describes to me that he had seen things no man should ever have to see. I listened, thinking how really little I knew about life and wondering how I would have fared under the circumstances. Well, as if he had read my thoughts, he said, you couldn't cope with that, could you? Embarrassed, I stumbled out something like, no, I'm sure you're right. And he grinned and said, nor could I. I was a man who fainted at the sight of his own blood, let alone that of others. But what I discovered in the camp was this. God does not help us to face theoretical situations, but real ones. Like you, I couldn't imagine how one could cope in the gulag. But there, I found that God met me. Exactly as Jesus had promised his disciples when he was preparing them for persecution. So Lennox concludes, we can be confident then that the Lord will give us a sufficient amount of grace to handle whatever comes, whenever it comes, but not necessarily a moment before. So let's be confident, shall we? Not cocky or overconfident, but confident that God will help us to be unafraid whatever this old world hurls at us. Even as we work as good Christian citizens to try and stem the tide as much as we can, even as we pray for revival and renewal that in his mercy God might yet turn things around for our culture, let's be confident that he'll give us the strength to be unafraid when the time comes. Well, there's so many other texts that we could turn to. But I want to end with this one that speaks to both of my main points. Don't be surprised and don't be afraid. Jesus said to his disciples in John's Gospel, in this world you will have trouble. Don't be surprised. And then he went on to say, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Don't be afraid. By his death and resurrection, Jesus decisively absorbed into his own person and triumphed over the worst that the world can deal out. And he won that victory for you and me. And our king is already on the throne, reigning. There's nothing happening in our world that is outside of his control. As I said earlier, there is not anything that can happen to his church or to any individual in it that doesn't pass through his hands first. Some of us, perhaps, are afraid not for ourselves, but for our children and our grandchildren. I won't ask for a show of hands. I I just know from talking to people that some of us figure that whatever happens in this world, we're not likely to live long enough to see the worst of it, but we are concerned about the world that we're passing on to our children and to our grandchildren. Well, if that's the way you feel, let me 
end by encouraging you with these words from a youth pastor in Arkansas. Don't feel sorry for or fear for your kids because the world they're growing up in is not what it used to be. God created them and called them for the exact moment in time that they're in. Their life was not a coincidence or an accident. Raise them up to know the power they walk in as children of God. Train them in the authority of his word. Teach them to walk in faith, knowing that God is in control. Empower them to know that they can make a difference in the world. Don't teach them to be fearful and disheartened by the state of the world, but hopeful that they can do something about it. Every person in history has been placed in the time they were in because of God's sovereign plan. He knew Daniel could handle the lion's den. He knew David could handle Goliath. He knew Esther could handle Haman. He knew Peter could handle persecution. And he knows that your children can handle whatever challenge they face in their life. He created them specifically for it. So don't be scared for your children, but be honored that God chose you to parent the generation that's facing the biggest challenges of our lifetime. Rise to the challenge. Raise Daniels, Davids, Esthers, and Peters. God isn't scratching his head wondering what he's going to do with this mess of a world. He's raising an army. He's raising an army to drive back the darkness and make himself known over all the earth. Don't let your fear steal the greatness that God placed in your children. I know it's hard to imagine them as anything but our sweet little babies. and We just want to protect them from anything that could ever be hard on them. But they were born for such a time as this. Let's pray. Well, Lord, you know that I need that bracing word as I think about my own precious children and grandchildren. And who knows, as fast as things have changed in recent years, it may not be just the children and grandchildren, the next generation and the one after that that needs special grace to not be surprised and not be afraid. Meet us in our need, we pray. Help us to achieve a, a, a balance that honors you. As citizens of this great land, may we be uh, and do all that we can be and do to stem the tide um, and to um, see you honored in the public square and to assert and protect the liberties that we have so long taken for granted. That on the one side, but on the other side, if that fails to um, do what your people have done down through the centuries, Old Testament and New Testament, stay faithful to you, speak the truth, live not by lies, leave the results in your hands, knowing as we do the end of the story, the final triumph of our King and of the Gospel. Give us that hope, we pray. But we would be remiss if we did not also pray once more. For those of our brothers and sisters in lands where it is far worse. 
Perhaps at this very moment there is someone languishing in a cell, someone bereaved by state-sponsored persecution of a loved one, someone losing his livelihood, someone whose children have been kidnapped, perhaps daughters taken to be brides for Taliban soldiers. Lord, would you in your mercy sustain your church our brothers and sisters, wherever they may be, for your own name's sake, that the way we handle, the way we face the trials of this world will bear witness to the superior satisfaction that we have in you so that we can say whatever comes and say with integrity as David did in Psalm 27, whom have I in heaven but you and earth has nothing I desire besides you. Then you'll be glorified, your name will be seen as great, and we'll have put a smile on your face. But we need your help to do that. We pray for it in your son's name. Amen.